Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from canvas to screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org. An unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union, wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us wherever you're listening throughout Southern California or on the LAist app throughout the country and around the world. The Dodgers open spring training baseball this afternoon, so it's a very big day for fans of the guys in blue. We're, of course, going to have a lot of coverage of the season coming up. The triple play later on going to be reconvening to talk about this very promising 2024 season. But we begin with a look uh, at an economic snapshot of the Inland Empire because, as you're probably aware, during the pandemic, when so many people were ordering things from home, we saw an explosion of e-commerce And then, of course, the ships got backed up at the port complex of Long Beach and Los Angeles. They couldn't get the ships unloaded in time. Once they did, then uh, there was a need for a place to put all the goods that are arriving into the U.S. And so we saw the logistics industry in the Inland Empire with expansion and hiring people just as fast as they could. But now we have a more recent snapshot of what happened in 2023. And that boom is bust in large part. Joining us is William Lee, chief economist with the Milken Institute. Bill, good to have you with us again. So, so what's happening in the IE right now, particularly around logistics? Well, logistics for the empire is really a very important employer. It's the second largest employer in the region. It employs about 275,000, 280,000 workers. Uh, and, and the pay in this industry is really quite good. Uh, median salaries are somewhere about $20 an hour. Um, so so the, the sector is actually critical. The trouble is um, warehouses take space. And it competes for space for housing and, and other uses. And so there's a tension uh, in, the, in the empire about what best to do with the space there. And But but right now, as you said, the logistics industry is such an important uh, sector for Los Angeles as a whole, mainly because of our ports. Our ports handle about 40% of all trade coming into the United States. Uh, and, and I think the, the, the key is how do you keep Los Angeles – and the Inland Empire as a major logistics hub, while at the same time making room for other uses like like housing and, and, and affordable housing for people. Well, and of course, in, in the IE, you've got space for mega warehouses. You've also got a workforce that historically has commuted out of Riverside and San Bernardino County to jobs in Orange and Los Angeles counties. This is an opportunity for people to work closer to home, um, although uh, at the same time, you've got people who in the Inland Empire have pushed back against logistics because of the air pollution around all the truck trips and um, just the nature of the 24-7 operations of these warehouses. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, though, uh, as much as there's a downside that you just mentioned, and, and those are very significant downsides to having uh, all, this, all this activity there, um, the type of jobs in the logistics industry has been upgrading over time. Um, the, the warehouse worker is no longer the guy who just drives the forklift and, and can just uh, move stuff around, but people who operate computer consoles and, and the automation in the industry has really risen, raised productivity to the point where the jobs themselves are very high-tech jobs. So, so in that sense, uh, the Inland Empire is a great place to put a lot of this stuff because, as you say, there's a lot of room there, but also there's a lot of unemployment there. People are looking for jobs, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and relative to the, to the coast, it's a much more affordable place to live. We're talking with William Lee, chief economist with the Milken Institute, based in Southern California. Also with us is Paul Granillo, who's president and CEO of the Inland Empire Economic Partnership, which works to improve regional challenges on transportation and business development. Paul, thank you for for being with us. Uh, Please give us a little more um, quantification of what's happening in the job market in the Inland Empire. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, you know, the couple of issues I think we need to tackle that uh, are important to this discussion. Um, one, we have to remember that there was labor um, insecurity at the ports of LA and Long Beach while uh, labor negotiations were going on. You know, any of us that plan a vacation, you know, we if we're going overseas, we have to figure out how to get there, what we're going to do every day, and then how to get back. Uh, with the supply chain, it's the same thing. And if we think that there's going to be disruption in our vacation, well, we may choose to go to another place. Um, and that's what we saw during the uh, the labor dispute, that cargo was moved away from the ports of LA and Long Beach to, to other ports. We also have to factor in that post the pandemic, um, we as consumers have gone back to maybe a more normal way of buying things. Uh, where during the pandemic and right after we would order uh, six rolls of uh, paper towels in a box to be delivered to our door. Now we feel more comfortable just getting that uh, roll of paper towels when we're at when we're at the market. And so that has been another change to um, what why things are the way they are. I think that we also have to appreciate that uh, the Inland Empire has a very strong economy still. We've added 32,000 jobs since uh, December. That's just slightly behind Orange County at 35,000. And of course, LA um, is uh, at 95,000 because of its size. Every other region of California has lost jobs. So there's uh, reasons for why things have changed, um, but we also have to look to uh, the future, because you know economies are cyclical, and there's times where things um, are uh, on the downswing, and then there's times when they're on the upswing. Paul, do you have a sense of whether the cargo that redirected to other American ports during the the slowdown and backup of ships at Long Beach and LA, whether that traffic is now coming back into the Southern California complex? Yes, I think we're seeing uh, some of that return, and then. Larry, in the the long term, um, and maybe not so long term, we also have to uh, appreciate that right now in the Panama Canal, uh, trips through the Panama Canal are being throttled down because there's a drought. 
my wife and I had an opportunity on our honeymoon to travel through the Panama Canal. It's beautiful. It's a, uh, really something everybody should see, but it depends on water in the mountains uh, to drive the, the hydraulic lifts. And that's, there's a drought. And so there's throttling down at the Panama Canal. And then we also know that there's unrest um, in, in the Red Sea, um, and which is the entry point uh, into the Suez Canal. So those two um, issues are going to have to play out, and uh, that could have an impact on our ports. We're talking with Paul Granillo of the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. He's president and CEO of the organization. William Lee is the chief economist with the Milken Institute. We're talking about the economy of the Inland Empire, which is Riverside and San Bernardino counties. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name with your email question. Paul, I was I was wondering as as we have seen uh, so many first uh, generation college students, particularly at the Cal States, over the past few years, this generation really upping its its college education. What if any impact do we see that having on the Inland Empire and the match between available jobs and growing education level there? That's a great question, Larry. And I'm one of those first generation uh, Cal State graduates. Uh, my alma mater, Cal State San Bernardino, um, really uh, changed my, my life trajectory, right? And so I've been able to do things because I, I received that, uh, that education and it grounded me. I think that's the story of a lot of people in the Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, of regions of over a million people, we still have one of the lowest baccalaureate attainment uh, uh, levels in the nation. That's why our logistics sector, manufacturing, uh, those jobs are really important for us. Um, we are now um, the 12th largest metropolitan statistical area in the United States out of 390. Uh, we keep growing by about 70,000 people a year. So we're gonna bypass, as we did San Francisco, we're about to bypass uh, Boston, Cambridge, and then Phoenix, and then we'll be in the top 10. So the diversification of our economy um, is really important. And so, but we can only do that when we uh, raise that baccalaureate attainment level so that uh, more more diversified sectors uh, can come and thrive in the region. Paul, what about um, the cost to rent or to buy a home in the Inland Empire? That's been such a draw in population. I I was looking at a recent Los Angeles Times story by Don Lee and Samantha Masunaga, which uh, said that population in the IE has increased since 2000 by 45 percent, up to 4.7 million residents last year, much of those people drawn by more affordable housing. But even there, of course, it's, it's gone up considerably. So what are we seeing with the housing market in the IE versus L.A. and Orange counties? So still continuing to grow. You know, the, the story of the Inland Empire is that the city of East Vale with 70,000 people didn't exist uh, 12 years ago. Uh, you're seeing that happen in Southwest Riverside County, the city of Menifee, um, growing. And these are these are wonderful communities that people uh, want to live in. And so the fact that we continue to grow means that we need to invest in the region. Uh, we need to invest in our infrastructure. Um, 
housing right now, three bedroom, two bath in Riverside County is about $600,000. The fact of the matter is you move that house to Claremont and it's gonna gain $400,000 in value. And if you move it to Irvine, it's gonna gain a million dollars in value. And it's the same house, right? Three bedrooms, two bath, it's location. And so people obviously are choosing uh, to go where they can afford a home and maybe more of a home. Um, and and that's that's the story of the Inland Empire. And of course, interest rates um, hitting people regardless of where they live as they've climbed considerably. Chris in Ontario, good to have you with us. Uh, thanks for joining us. Your point, please. Thank you, Larry. Yes, I think that the the point is completely being missed here, especially about the LA Times story, which I think is the reason you're doing this today. And that is that the warehouse industry or the logistics industry is been the primary focus of building the economy here when we should be diversifying our economy in the Inland Empire. We've already suffered from focusing on only single economies when we had Kaiser Steel and when we had the military bases. When both closed, it was devastating to the region. They're doing it again, and it's because of the developers trying to make a fast buck and putting money into campaigns. And then the elected officials look the other way. There's no conversation being had about whether this is the focus that we should have or we should diversify. Chris, what would, be some, what would be some industries that you think would be well-matched with the residential workforce in the Inland Empire that, that cities and counties should be investing in? Well, the, the medical industry and healthcare which we do actually, ironically, have Kaiser Permanente. And there's Loma Linda with its companies. Yes, exactly. Uh, Those are growth industries in California. And high tech, we have, with all this space, we have the ability to put in an infrastructure like no other has been put in before. But no one is talking about this. No one is looking at it as as a viable option for building the economy out here. We have fantastic education out here, but most people, they don't come back here because the jobs that they're looking for when they leave college are outside the region. So yeah, people want to move here because it's cheaper, which is starting to change. It's getting more expensive. It's still relatively cheaper. Yet the people, once they're educated here, they have to look for those jobs outside the region. We're not building those jobs here. Chris, terrific call. Thank you so much for joining us. Paul Grineo, you want to uh, take the first crack at this? Yeah, I think we need to remember that educational attainment drives uh, what a regional economy can do. And so uh, there isn't high tech in the region because we, we don't have the workforce for that. Um, our region is actively working on uh, increasing baccalaureate attainment, and we're working on the competitiveness of the region. Um, but those two things go hand in hand, and, and, and you can't divorce those. Um, I think that um, we have to appreciate that the logistics industry exists because of the way we purchase goods. Uh, yesterday, there was an article in the Wall Street uh, Journal talking about uh, suburban Pennsylvania and pushback on a fulfillment center. Yet if people want their same day delivery, they have to have the infrastructure that's going to provide that. So 
very aware of, uh, of the issues in the Inland Empire, and we're doing our best to, to work on our challenges. Bill Lee of Milken, you want to uh, take a crack at Chris's uh, comment? Absolutely. In fact, I, I, would, I was going to say the reason why there are no high-tech jobs there, even though there's so much uh, remote working, is partly because of the infrastructure of highways. Uh, if you need to get back to the office somewhere in, on, the, on the coast, it's almost impossible to get there in a reasonable amount of time. So I think the policies of, at the state level, going beyond the Inland Empire, is absolutely critical to try to build more diversity into the Inland Empire, being able to have throughput on the on the freeways is an absolutely mandatory requirement and if we don't be careful with that if we don't improve our highway infrastructure even the logistics industry will be choked out of existence because right now truckers are finding it incredibly difficult to move freight from the ports to the warehouses for further distribution so i, I would say there's a word of warning here that goes beyond inland empire but the california state legislature has got to get off its its tail and do something about the clogged up uh, network of highways, which was the gem of California just a few decades ago. Well, and Bill, as you know, there's always pushback when there's an effort to widen a freeway because the idea is, well, we want to get people out of their cars and, uh, you know, into public transit, and um, there won't be the push to build public transit in those places unless people are forced to take it. But, you know, that doesn't take into account the very point you make about the need for a commercial move of goods on freeways and how much is lost uh, in terms of, of value by having trucks sitting there and how much pollution comes from that as they're sitting idling in traffic. Absolutely. And, 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 and I know that it's difficult to say, oh, let's build another highway, but, but making it a little bit more efficient to, to use the highway, it would go a long way. Right now, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, you know, HOV and, and, and express lanes that are supposed to be dedicated for certain types of drivers. But I think some preference has to be given to our commercial drivers to be able to move that freight and just move the trucks off of some of the passenger lanes. Uh, giving them more throughput uh, is, is going to be absolutely critical. Thank you so much. That's William Lee, chief economist with the Milken Institute. Paul Granillo, president and CEO of the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. Coming up, we'll talk about the rise of Christian cinema You know, Hollywood studios used to make a lot of of films that had very uh, explicit Christian themes, and they were big moneymakers for the big five studios going back to Hollywood's golden era. They then started ignoring those themes in large part in films, and now you've got some smaller studios like Angel Studios in Utah that have really picked up the baton and are seeing some great success. We'll talk about the rise of the Christian movie market when we come back in one minute. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. 
Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll talk with the directors of Bobby Wine, the People's President, Oscar nominated for Best Feature Documentary, the story of the singer and politician in Uganda, Bobby Wine. We'll hear about his story coming up in just a few minutes. But we're so pleased to have a brand new um, working arrangement with the uh, Ankler, uh, which provides such great uh, entertainment news. Ankler with uh, a variety of top reporters that cover important news out of Hollywood and entertainment entertainment generally. And today we're so pleased on our Entertainment Thursday to welcome Sean McNulty, writer of the daily entertainment industry newsletter, The Wake Up, which you can find at The Ankler. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Uh, So you've written about the rise of Christian-themed entertainment, as I mentioned before the break. This actually was a staple of early Hollywood, going back to the silent era and during the golden age of Hollywood. There were a number of explicitly Christian-themed movies, which uh, came with great fanfare and and wide releases, Hollywood sort of bowing out of that. So who's, who's picking up that baton? There's two main players in the in the field at this point. Um, one is Angel Studios, which you mentioned earlier. They had the big hit with Sound of Freedom uh, this summer. It's kind of the, the big surprise hit that no one saw coming uh, this July and August. Uh, the other big player uh, these days is a company called Kingdom Story, which is um, a part of Lionsgate, one of the studios in, in Hollywood. Uh, I think the, the majority owner. Uh, they had a, a movie called Jesus Revolution last year, which made over $50 million at the U.S. box office. They have a film this Friday opening uh, called Ordinary Angels with Hilary Swank. Uh, they've had a few, you know, a few hits here and there over the years from the past, you know, maybe five to eight years or so. Another film coming up this Christmas, another uh, based on the a book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. And Amazon has just gotten into uh, it as well, uh, doing a, a partnership with a company called The Wonder Project, which is just created in, in December. Uh, and they announced a, uh, a series based on the House of David. Uh, and even Sony still has a label called Affirm Films, which had a film called uh, Journey to Bethlehem, which came out in, in November, wasn't that successful, but they have they are in the business as well. Well, and then there's the, the TV series, The Chosen, which uh, I know a couple of people actually contributed money toward the production of The Chosen, which uh, follows the life of Jesus and, and is another um, production that's gotten a great deal of attention. Yep, that's another Kingdom Story project. I think that's, I believe it's in season four, definitely season three or four. Uh, they've been releasing a series of episodes, uh, you know, episodes one through three, then four through six, two weeks later. Uh, they've been, uh, this month in February, over $20 million so far at the box office. Again, for, you know, for TV episodes, they're not even movies per se. So uh, they found a real business here. You know, it's not blockbuster groundbreaking money, but $20 million, you know, and with, with more to come this month. There's nothing to sneeze at. And how do they crowdsource funding for some of these productions? 
Angel's, you know, famous for that. Uh, the Chosen started out under Angel and came back, you know, it's no longer an Angel production. So Sound of Freedom famously, they have, you know, kind of a, a membership club. It's a very online digital community of people. Um, and the part of it, which got a lot of attention this summer is, you know, kind of paying it forward. So you, you know, you pay money to buy somebody else a ticket, whether they use it or not, you know, the money is gone, you know, the money is paid already. So, you know, that's been a, you know, there's a lot of conversation around that, you know, buying tickets for people who aren't showing up to the theater to see them, you know, a lot of evidence on either side of that merchandise is a big thing. They had a, a movie, a, a thing called the tomb, which they did a, a series of necklaces, which you could buy. So they have a lot of these ancillary unusual uh, methods for a studio to, to make money and other people have given money to go toward the marketing campaign. Sound of Freedom had that as well. I think it was maybe five or $6 million worth of crowdfunding that was marketing money. And they, in the success, they said it's over $250 million globally. You know, they paid them back, I, you know, a nominal fee to, uh, to return since they made the profit on that. So it's unique. It's different. Um, but it, it definitely raises a lot of eyebrows out there. We're talking with Sean McNulty, who writes the daily entertainment industry newsletter, The Wake Up, at our partner, uh, The Ankler, who every Thursday we're bringing you some of their uh, outstanding coverage of the entertainment industry. Our film critic, Wade Major of Film Week, also with Synagogues.com, and author of the Hollywood Heretics Substack, is with us. Wade, uh, you reviewed Jesus Revolution quite favorably, a very Southern California uh, story about the rise of Jesus people as they were known back in the late 60s, early 70s here in Southern California, the rise of Calvary Chapel and Pastor Chuck Smith. What are your thoughts about what what works in these religiously themed films and what doesn't? It's a really interesting question because, you know, this has been going on for a few decades. I mean, the whole faith-based thing really kind of begins with Paul Crouch from Trinity Broadcasting, who uh, pivoted from protesting Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ and making his own movies, and that started with the Left Behind movies. And those were all kind of of two sorts originally. There were movies about people who discover um, some level of faith in their lives, and then there were more kind of straightforward biblical movies. And what Jesus Revolution did was it pivoted, and you have Kelsey Grammer and a really A-list cast, top-tier Hollywood production value, but it was, it was dramatically more challenging. It wasn't ju uh, just a faith-affirming story. It actually had uh, moments of drama and, and faith-challenging moments, and it appealed to people beyond just kind of a core of faith-based audiences. And I think that's the key here is understanding that the old four quadrant way of looking at movies, you know, male, female, old, young, and kind of dividing it along gender and age lines may need to be more nuanced. There are people who have other values and other concerns and other interests, and these movies are now exposing that. So I think the lesson Hollywood has to learn is not we need to be making more Bible-themed or faith-themed movies, but we need to be making movies of all types and, and of all themes and all subject matters that take the values of these audiences into account. And something like Wonka, for instance, which is obviously not a faith-based movie, but
but I think it has elements that appeal to that audience, and that's one reason why it's about to blow over $600 million. Wade, why did the studios largely abandon these th- th- these films? You know, I think of the early days of the Hollywood studios, and, and they're run by Jewish immigrants to Hollywood, and, and yet yeah. they seem to really understand what, what um, filmgoers want from all different backgrounds in America, including Christian-themed films. What led Hollywood to depart from that? It's a good question, and I think a lot of it had to do with sort of demographics and and shifting cultural values in the 1960s. You know, it all really starts during the silent era because uh, biblical movies are spectacle, and seeing stories that used to exist just on the page of Scripture suddenly brought to life uh, by people like Cecil B. DeMille, who made them in the silent era, and then again, you know, in, in the sound era. Um, that, that made these, these spectacular stories come to life in a really exhilarating way. It maximized the power of cinema. And um, at a certain point, other kinds of spectacle took their place. And people, you know, spectacle wore thin after a while. I mean, we forget, you know, the, the, every time you had a new innovation in film, the first thing they went after were Bible stories. It wasn't even just the beginning of film. Once we had widescreen, what was the first widescreen movie? It was The Road. Mm, and what was the yeah. first 11 Academy Award winner? It was Ben-Hur. So, you know, the spectacle uh, always goes after those biblical stories first. And we even, we even saw that as recently as something like Gladiator, which could theoretically be put in that class as well. So uh, I, think, I think when other kinds of spectacle emerge, like superhero films, Hollywood maybe pivots there to, to see if it, it can exploit a different kind of spectacle. Uh, everything runs its course, but everything always comes back around again. And I think that's, come, you know, Bible movies and, and that level of spectacle is, is about due for a comeback. Wade, thank you so much as always. Appreciate it. That's our Wade Major, our film critic for uh, our uh, Friday Film Week program here on LAS 89.3. He also writes for Synagogues.com and is author of the Hollywood Heretic Substack. And my thanks to Sean McNulty of our partner, The Ankler. Uh, Sean writes the daily entertainment industry newsletter, The Wake Up, uh, which is available at uh, The Ankler's website. Every Thursday, we're covering entertainment including our TV talk coming up next hour, where we'll hear about the return of a number of network TV series after the uh, uh, double-barrel strikes that took place in Hollywood production back uh, intact, but shorter network television seasons for scripted series. We'll talk about the returns of series like Abbott Elementary, Bob Hart's Abishola, and Ghosts, as well as new streaming series. That's all coming up next hour on TV Talk. Coming up, one of the Oscar-nominated documentaries. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Yeah.
I say it is not the secret anymore that we want to remove Museveni from power. You're listening to a clip from the Oscar-nominated documentary Bobby Wine, The People's President. It centers on the Ugandan singer and presidential hopeful under the stage name Bobby Wine. You heard him talking to his crowd of supporters. This is one of the Oscar nominees for Best Documentary Feature, and it follows Ugandan opposition leader and popular musician Wine as he uses his music to criticize the government of his country's longtime president, as the Ugandan parliament considers dropping the presidential term limit. Wine follows that by running for president himself. And with us are the directors of Bobby Wine, the people's president, Moses Boyo, and Christopher Sharp. Gentlemen, very good to have you with us today. Uh, You were both born in Uganda. How closely were you both following the expanding power of President Museveni even before Bobby Wine runs for parliament? Thank you, Larry. Thank you so much for having us. It's an honor for us to be here and to share this story with the world. Um, President Museveni came into power 38 years ago, promising Ugandans a return to democracy. Uh, he said so much. Uh, he said so many things, like what Bobby is saying today. Um, and you know, uh, living in Uganda as a young man. I was very aware of the situation and like many Ugandans are very aware of the situation and, and you know, the problems that we have. Um, there's not so many opportunities for us. You know, uh, we had been locked out of uh, pot- uh, participating in politics. Um, yeah. So um, the Ugandans are very aware of the situation in Uganda and we follow it very closely. But here came a young man, charismatic leader, who was promising us a different future, and he want, he offered himself to lead us to that future. So yes, um, he had awoken, awakened a population and was asking all of us to get involved. Museveni, um, yeah. in, in his early years, how was he perceived by the public then? What really led to his early popularity? So Uganda got its independence in 1962, and in the first 24, uh, 25 years, Uganda had so, so many coups. You know, uh, it, uh, Obote came into power, was the first president, and then there was a few other people that came. And then Idi Amin took over another very brutal dictatorship. Obote came back, and then there was Tito Kelo Lutwa, uh, and there was uh, a few others who came, and they were similarly brutal and military uh, uh, leaders. Um, but Museveni went to the bush, led a five-year-long um, guerrilla uprising, where we saw half a million Ugandans dead. And he promised us democracy. He promised to... He's a freedom fighter. Yes, that's what he was. And he convinced Ugandans to stand with him. And so many Ugandans stood with him. In fact, uh, Bobby says his, 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 uh, his father was one of the people who fought in that, that bush war. Um, and so many Ugandans and, and like the, the, the generation of our parents uh, fought in that war and, and supported Museveni. Museveni was saying the things Bobby is saying today. He was saying... He was going to bring democracy in Uganda. There was going to be, you know, a good education policy, uh, health care, and he was going to provide solutions to the problems that we had at the time. But, you know, lo and behold, it's 38 years today uh, since he came into power in 1986. Uh, 1986 um, he, he has become a shadow 
of himself. In fact, uh, not to jump too far ahead in the story, but in your documentary, there's an interview that Bobby Wine has given, and he's actually asked, what's to keep you from becoming mm -hmm. like Museveni? And and Bobby says, well, I know he said the same things that I'm saying now, but and I'm paraphrasing him. It, this is about power to the people, and the people will make sure that if that transformation happens in me, that that won't, that won't lead to uh, me hanging on. And uh, there's so many powerful moments in this film. It's just, it's remarkable. We're talking with the two directors of Bobby Wine, The People's President, which over a several-year period, through remarkable footage, shows the life, the threat to the life uh, of Bobby Wine and his supporters uh, throughout the course of his transformation from popular musician into leading political figure in Uganda. Um, Let's talk a bit about Wine's popularity as a musician. So when he starts, is he largely apolitical with his music? Yeah, he is. I mean, when he originally started, he was singing about all the things that, you know, young musicians, he was singing about girls, going out, having a good time. But what happened, Bobby had grown up in the ghetto, and through his success musically, he had managed to remove himself from there and set up a pretty good life. He had this wonderful wife, he had these four children, but at the same time he was looking back at all the people who'd been left behind and he didn't want to become like the people who were repressing the people of Uganda. You know, Museveni famously said when he came to power, the problem with Africa, particularly Uganda, is leaders who stay too long in power. And, you know, and that's what the film's about. It's about the fragility of democracy. In Uganda, they had a constitution, a very robust constitution. You could only have two term limits. You couldn't stay in power beyond the age of 75. And slowly, the current president has eroded all of that. And now the institutions, the judiciary, the armed forces, the police forces, the electoral commission, they're all controlled by one person. And this is what Bobby's acutely aware of. And as you say, you know, what's to stop him becoming like Museveni? And I asked Bobby the other day, I said, you know, how would you spend your first 100 days in office? And he said, I'd spend the first 100 days making sure I couldn't stay in power. Wow. And yes. We should mention, Christopher and Moses as well, that it's not just that Museveni um, goes after getting the parliament to change the constitution to allow him to stay past the age and the term limit. It's that he uses the police as as a squad to go out and target people who are in opposition to him. And, and we see this quite vividly. There are disturbing images in your documentary which shows the degree of violence that, that this armed force uh, resorts to, not just against Bobby Wine, but his followers, anybody who's perceived to be an enemy. Yeah, I mean, it's a campaign of fear. So what you do is, you know, every five years, Museveni has sham elections. And the sham elections are really a tip to us in the West saying, you know, I am a democracy. We recognize, I don't think anyone thinks that Uganda is a democracy, but he goes through this process and the elections have got nothing to do with the vote. They're completely separate for that. I mean, we were pretty convinced and it was pretty obvious that Bobby Wine won this election. Mm -hmm. So he puts the nation through that. And then the other thing he does is he goes around 
picking up people who he perceives are in opposition to him. He will pick up Bobby's supporters. They'll disappear. They'll be tortured. So there's this mass amount of intimidation and fear that he tries to control the nation. Well, and I think, Moses, what's so impressive to me is despite this campaign of intimidation and physical violence, people beaten, I mean, severely injured and killed in some cases, that this is so important to Ugandans yeah. that you have people that just are out there with Bobby Wine continuing to do this work to support his campaign. I mean, the, the courage and the commitment people have is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, um, as you mentioned clearly in the beginning, Christopher and myself, we were both born in Uganda, so we had this deep connection to the country. And for the first time, we saw this charismatic leader leading a revolution, right? And, you know, for us, we wanted to tell that story unfiltered. And we've seen and witnessed, you know, the the enthusiasm, you know, the, the way the Ugandan population looks at, at this young, you know, leader, Bobby Wine, who's dreaming for a different future. So, you know, we spent time in, on the campaigns, you know, going around the country, and you see old women running from the gardens, you know, trying to come and, and say hi to him, and, you know, and you see old men, you know, living like that, you know, wherever they are, and just standing on the streets, and they showed up to vote, you know, and you see the young as well. Uganda is, is the second youngest country in the world, uh, with 85% of the population under the age of 35 years. It's a very young country. So the young people are looking for opportunities, right? And here is a young leader who's offering them these thoughts and, you know, wants to change the country for the better. So, you know, it, it, it's been a blessing for us to, to document this story and to be present in that moment. It's been, a, you know, an honor. It, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to so many parts, but it is an inspirational film at the Thank same you. time. Yeah. And there's an image you mentioned about even, you know, old people. Yeah. being. There's an image of, a, of an older man standing on the street yeah. dazed to bloodied head who's been yes. attacked. Yes. For, yes. for standing up and being a supporter of Bobby Wine. And there's so many images like that that stayed with me. We're talking about the film, which is available, by the way, to stream right now on Disney Plus and on Hulu. Bobby Wine, the People's President, Oscar-nominated for Best Feature Documentary. We're talking with the filmmaker Moses Boyo and Christopher Sharp. We'll be back with more in just a minute. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and we're talking with the co directors of the documentary Bobby Wine, The People's President, which has remarkable footage taken over a period of several years in Uganda, including the 2021 presidential election there, in which Bobby Wine is uh, running a campaign against the longtime president of the country who's had the Constitution changed to remove term limits and age limits. Bobby Wine decides, as a member of parliament, to challenge the president at great risk to himself and to his family. Moses Boyo and Christopher Sharp are the directors of the film, both of them Ugandan-born. One of the very moving parts of the film is with Bobby and his family, his wife Barbie, and their kids are just the cutest kids. And you see what the loving, warm relationship that the family has. And let's talk about Barbie, first of all, because she's all in on this at tremendous risk. 
Yeah, I mean, Barbie, I mean, you know, Bobby was just saying to Moses and I the other day that we said to him, you know, where would you have been if you hadn't met Barbie? And he said, well, I'd still be in the ghetto making music, you know. Um, Barbie has been his moral compass. She has, you know, been, she's loved in Uganda beyond because she's just this, you know, she's seen as the first lady of Uganda. She's elegant. She she never puts a foot wrong. She's highly intelligent. And she stood by Bobby and um, helped to guide him and supported him because they have made incredible risks. You know, there's very few wives who would be willing to have their lives so disrupted as she has. And the children, I mean, Bobby was saying just this morning, you know, we made a decision to really tell the children what was going on and not keep them away from what was happening because they go to school and if Bobby's in prison, you know, another kid will say, oh, your dad's in prison, implying that Bobby has done something wrong. So he said, we've really got into this, this space where we're one unit And we explain to them, you know, I'm going to have to spend time in prison and this is the reason and this is what we're trying to achieve. And there's a period where they're sent abroad um, and you have the separation of the family. Of course, you see the toll, um, but you still see that that connection as a family unit. I, I wonder about the cameras going through all of this. I mean, you have you have live footage from periods where shots are fired at them, where where um, people are dragged out of cars. There, there's a scene where um, uh, the mayor of um, uh, I'm sorry, the capital Kampala. city, Kampala, yes, yes, yes absolutely. Kampala is pulled out of the doorway of his home yeah. and just and uh, thrown into a police vehicle yeah. as he is, uh, you know, addressing reporters. Um, these uh, share with us the challenge of being in these places with your crew. Yeah, well, um, I must say again, and you know, it, it's an it, it's a it's it was a blessing that we were present in those moments because sometimes uh, n- not capturing that uh, we wouldn't be uh, uh, the world wouldn't see what is happening right now, um, but. Yes, those those moments are also challenging situations and scary situations. You were hurt, Larry. I was shot in the face at close range, um, and it's not the first time a gun was pointed in my face, but it's the first time someone shot. Um, and I was locked up in prison. I was interrogated. Um, we've had uh, equipment confiscated, um, and you know, uh, and towards uh, after the uh, the election there had been two attempted kidnaps on my wife chris and i decided that i had i, I had to wow. leave the country before we would release the film um and you know this violence in the beginning was happening to just the politicians and those close to them and their supporters but the state and its apparatus started uh, meeting the same violence against you know the the journalists and people who are covering Bobby uh, and as we speak there are some journalists whom we don't know where they are you know who who had been covering Bobby uh, so it's a blessing to be here today to be sharing this story yeah I mean just I, we can't imagine what you went through but share with us during the time that you were in jail mm. what was that like Wow, uh, it was a very reflective moment. You know, I had to. Uh, I thought to myself, "How did I get 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 here?" You know, but I reminded myself that I didn't have, I didn't do anything wrong. This is not because of what I'm doing. This is because of of the state, right? And 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 the misrule, 
right? And when I came out, it encouraged me even the more, right? Even after being shot in the first, this, that encouraged me even the more. It strengthened me to continue forward because, you know, I knew that actually what we're doing is, is scary to them, you know? We, have, we just have cameras and we're just telling a story and they're bringing this kind of violence onto us, right? It means you're actually doing something. If, you know, a whole dictatorship is scared of you, right? So, uh, and I remember the first time I saw Bobby after being shot in the face, is like, Moses, you will look back at this moment and know that this that you have, that scar in your face is a badge of honor. And yes, I wear it with pride and, and I'm proud of it that, you know, yeah, we made these sacrifices. We're talking with the director of the Oscar-nominated Bobby Wine, the People's President, Moses Boyle, with us as fellow director of the film, Christopher Sharp, joining us as well. Um, where is Bobby now? Is he still in Uganda, or did he have to leave the country with his family? No, Bobby, Bobby will stay in Uganda. I mean, he wow. says, you know, it's my country. And I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be forced out. At the moment, he's with us here in Los Angeles oh. um, because obviously we're here for the film to yeah. support support yeah. the film. But Bobby and Barbie will stay there and they'll keep going. I mean, I think the thing, you know, for people, hopefully, when you watch the film, what you need to understand is it's still ongoing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people being abducted every day, intimidated, tortured, imprisoned, taken away. <clears throat> and Bobby is in a constant threat. He's, he's in constant, anything could happen to him at any time. You know, his house was surrounded recently, very recently, just a couple of weeks ago. And they actually, the police went away from his house when the Oscar nomination came out. Really? So they're very, they're very they're perceptive. They're paying attention. They're perceptive to the fact that, you know, when the world's looking, they behave a little better. When the world looks away, they do atrocities. So the attention the film's given has just been so wonderful for Uganda. Do you know to what extent the film has been seen in Uganda? Yeah, I mean, just to give a you know a little shout, shout out to um, Nat Geo, what they did is they made the film free on YouTube, mm -hmm. which was absolutely fantastic because it enables you know everyone to see it, which is just. Great. I'm sure you're getting tremendous response from Ugandans. Oh yes, to the film. yes, the Ugandan people are very excited, um, but also they are very encouraged because now the revolution has been televised. You know, and to they're quote really Bill encouraged. Scott here, yes, yeah. to carry forward in Uganda, we have something called Chibanda, and they're like tin tin roof kind of shacks, uh, but they sit about a hundred or two hundred people. So people are screening the film there, and and you know they're in like local communities. So this film is traveling in Uganda uh, in a very organic way and on mobile phones and you know things like that. But I wanted to add uh, to Chris's point um, uh, about why Bobby goes back home. Bobby, he's the embodiment of freedom and the fight for justice and democracy back home. He feels, he feels like if he left Uganda, and many times there's been opportunities for him to leave, he feels like if he leaves Uganda, he will derail the revolution and the fight. So him being this embodiment for this fight for freedom, he knows that back home is where he's needed most. And he must have come to terms with the fact he may not survive this. I mean, there was s several times during the filming, um, during the last six years, where one really felt that Bobby was not going to make it. 
you know, there was a period when there was an assassination attempt on him and they shot his driver dead instead of him, yeah. which is depicted in the film. And then he disappeared. And we, we really weren't sure where he was and whether we'd see him again. Mm. But, um, but as Moses was just saying, he feels the weight of the nation on him there's this massive expectation of all of these you know there's 44 million people of uganda and very few of them have anything yeah. and bobby has stood up he's been counted and he's their man from yeah. an apolitical afrobeat musician to leading political figure in his country it's quite a quite a journey gentlemen thank you for stopping in sharing with us the story from your Oscar-nominated Best Feature Documentary, Bobby Wine, the People's President. We appreciate it very much. Thank, Thank you, you, Larry. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you both for being with us. Moses Boyo, Christopher Sharp are the directors of the film. You can see it streaming on Disney Plus and on Hulu. It's Air Talk and Film Week on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mansell. So glad to have you with us today. Coming up later this hour, it's our TV talk with two great critics who are going to be joining us. We'll be talking with Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co and Inku Kang, TV critic for The New Yorker. They'll both be with us. We have a lot to talk about. But we begin with area codes. If you've lived here a long time, maybe you've been faithful to one area code and be able to, been able to keep it consistently, or maybe, like me, you've been somewhat promiscuous with your area codes. Uh, I go so far back to 213, which was the original Los Angeles County area code, even before that, in fact, had covered from Bakersfield to the Mexican border, uh, but then Los Angeles uh, County when I was growing up. I went from there to, to 818, to, to 323, to 626. Uh, I've had so many area codes, and many of you can probably relate to that, but we're getting yet another new one in Los Angeles, and joining us to talk about it, our L.A. Explained reporter at LAS. Caitlin Hernandez. Caitlin, good morning. Good morning. So what is the new code we get? 
So the new one is actually going to be, uh, it's 738, and it's going to be in the area where the 213 and 323 numbers get assigned. And that's kind of like around the central downtown LA area. Um, and that is projected, I believe, to start on November 1st. And it will just be an option that people can get new numbers assigned from. So it's not like anybody's number is going to change. Um, but it'll be a, the kind of like new kid on the block. Now, this is what they call an overlay area code, right? Which I guess is pretty much what we get now are overlays. Yeah, pretty much. Um, there are splits, which is when, you know, an area code does get split up into different regions and sometimes people's numbers have to change. But yes, you're right. This will be an overlay, which is pretty much a fancy term for just an additional area code. With number portability, so you switch cell phone carriers, you can take your number with you. And we've had that now for for many years. Uh, you know, it's it seemed like it really changed people's relationship with the area code, because I, I recall many years ago when cell phones were new and I I switched carriers. I couldn't take my previous number with me, and that forced uh, an area code change on me that I wouldn't have wanted to make, but I had to change the whole number. Now people, because of portability, can just take them with them. Right, definitely. You know, I, that's something I've done as well. Um, you know, I think especially even when you move to other states, now with the way we have technology, you can take your area code to anywhere across the U.S. pretty much, or even probably internationally. Um, for me, I'm a 626 holder, and I've had that for a very long you time. You're a proud 626 holder, Caitlin? Very much. I was an Inland Empire girly for a while, and I was a 909, yeah. 951. But now I'm 626, and I don't plan on letting it go anytime soon. Do you think that the area codes have lost any of their sense of identity because of all the overlays and because of the portability? Or do you still think 909 says Inland Empire, 714 says Orange County, that these 626 San Gabriel Valley, that they still hold that sense of place? I think there still is a lot of, of place, especially if you've you know been a California resident for a very long time. For the newer overlay codes that come in, like 738, for example, there's I think they They'll have a harder time getting, you know, that kind of community attachment to them. Like, I don't think we're going to have a, a 738 market like we have a 626 <laughs> market anytime soon. But, you know, who knows where we'll be at in like a decade or so. That could be. All right. We have a listener already, Jimmy in downtown L.A. weighing in. I grew up in Sherman Oaks back when we didn't even use area codes. I'm sure Larry remembers those days. Well, yeah, when you had one area code that went for essentially a third of the state of California, you never had to dial an area code. You didn't even think about it unless you're dialing long distance, you know, to New York or Chicago or some other part of the country. I'd love to hear from listeners, Caitlin, uh, about the the extent to which some of our listeners have gone to keep an area code that's particularly meaningful to them. And I'd also like to hear if you feel like your your area code is sort of a part of your identity, a part of who you are. I would love to hear what it means to you if you're a 310 or a 323 or a 909 or, or you know, what whatever the code is. What does it say about who you are? What are the elements of of that region that you want people to associate with you? We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. You may have written about this, uh, and I, I can't recall because I've been reading a number of pieces about area codes, Caitlin, but 
that 626, for example, for people whose families immigrated uh, from China or from Asia generally, it has that has great significance because it sort of it relates to the whole immigrant experience. Definitely. You know, I, I ended up speaking with a few people who have 626 numbers or, or, or in that area. And it there's a very strong connection between that area code and the San Gabriel Valley region, which is, you know, has multiple Asian communities in living there. And, um, you know, it's kind of like sometimes people see it synonymous as this is SGV. This is also 626. Like it's very attached. Like you said, 626 night market or where where it actually becomes a a descriptor for the location as well. Yes, definitely. For sure. Uh, What about the idea that, um, you know, 310 was sort of associated with with wealth and and the West Side very sort of um, glitz? and, And does that still hold up? You know, I think it really, really will depend on who you ask. Um, 310, like a lot of area codes do have some stereotypes attached to them, which, you know, if you look close enough, there will always be someone who's who doesn't fit that. Um, I did speak with someone who has a 310 area code and, you know, her experience didn't sound anything like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know anything about her economic status or anything like that, but like she lives in the South Bay and that's usually maybe yeah. not as associated with the West Side. Exactly. Well, here's the weird thing. I mean, the 310 area code, a very small percentage of people probably fit the stereotype of the area code, you know, they're working in other industries that don't, you know, but, but it nonetheless, it sort of takes that image to the rest of the world. Definitely, for sure. And I think even when you look at the West Side, people kind of think, oh, it's where the rich people live or whatever in the, in the county. But when you actually go walk around on the streets, it's for everyone. Yeah, 866-893-5722, our area code, 866-893-5722, where you can email us at ATComments at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. And I really want to hear from you. What does your area code mean to you? Or if you lost an area code in a move or you were forced to give up the number, um, maybe you lost it in a split up in your relationship because that could happen. I'd be so interested to hear what that was like and whether you grieved over the loss uh, of an area code. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Caitlin, do we have any sense that these overlay area codes are 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 going to stop happening because we've seen our population go down a bit? Um, you know, numbers get turned in. Uh, is this just going to continue with code after code? Uh, you know, I think they kind of come through every five or ten years. It it really does depend, though, because different regions will will have population increases at different times um, that get their numbering assignments. So, for example, the seven three eight area code is coming because the two one three three uh, three two three numbers are projected to exhaust soon, or the what's available, and that just means they'll get used up to the point where we need to make sure we have enough of a buffer. So it it very well could slow down through the years, but it's also I don't think something that will entirely go away. I, and I wonder if if part of the loss of the two one three is there has been in the last decade such a boom in population in downtown Los Angeles that might have of escalated um, the numbers uh, the area code uh, under the two one three. 
Definitely. And I'll say also, if you look back, um, you know, through the decades, a lot of the overlays happened and splits because uh, we had a big population boom. So it, it kind of matches with those periods mm-hmm. if you look closely. Makes sense. Uh, Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, our senior producer, is someone who grew up in a state with just one area code, 603. I kept my New Hampshire code for as long as I could after moving to Southern California. It's unique to New Hampshireites. It signals my link to my home state. But then I went to upgrade my phone and there was a great deal too good to pass up the only catch i had to do it with a new number i had a choice of area codes ultimately went with 323 because at the time i was living uh in the area where 323 was the local area code matt i'm so sorry lose and you can't get it back now yeah you're married here you're 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 employed here you're you're rooted here that code is gone. 866-893-5722. Leslie, in Pasadena, you're on with Larry Mantle and Caitlin Hernandez. Hi, good morning. My name's Leslie Libier, and I'm a psychologist in Pasadena. During the pandemic, I had to close my Montrose office after 22 years, and I had an 818 area code landline. I was able, two years later, when I reopened a new office in Pasadena, to port over my landline number, which was my business identity, over to my new Pasadena office. And I'm delighted because that's how people know how to find me. Does that confuse people, though, that you have you have a business number in Pasadena with what's associated with a San Fernando Valley area code? I have gotten a couple of uh, questions about it. And um, uh, it it seems to be something that people know about. Yeah. And uh, so aside from a few uh, questions about it, not yeah. really. Yeah, so your I'm office has moved, for- but you're still, you're right, yeah. But it's more good than harm, it sounds like. Thanks so much, Leslie. I appreciate it. 866-893-5722. Elisa in Valley Village, you're on Air Talk. Share with us what an area code has meant in your life. And I've, uh, so I am that person who moved from New York to L.A. in 99, but I have kept my 917 cell. Very specifically because of the, of the marker that it means I'm a New Yorker and, you know, and there's other people like me. Like, you meet 917 folks, and we're like, oh, yeah, New Yorker, never give up that cell phone. <laughs> and I think sometimes you can take the girl out of Brooklyn, but you can't take away her 917 cell. I love it. Right away, the, I was going to be an uh, L.A. person. I love it here. I never am going to move back to New York, but I'll, I'll never give up my 917. So it sounds like, Elisa, it's a great conversation starter with your, your uh, fellow former New Yorkers. Yes, it is. And I will also say, though, everything I do in business, I do have to say L.A. based because people are like, wait, you're in New York? Like, no, no, no. I'm here forever. Elisa, thanks so much from Valley Village, 866-893-5722. Caitlin Hernandez is joining me. Caitlin's just written a piece for L.A. Explained at LAS.com, and they've told us about this new 738 area code, which is going to be introduced in the fall. Is that when we get it? In November, it should start. November's uh, when it starts. So it gives us a great opportunity to talk about area codes, their place here in Southern California and what a code you've had or that you've worked hard to keep means to you today. 866-893-5722. Mark in Sherman Oaks, good to have you with us. So share with us uh, what you've done to keep your code. 
Hey, Larry. Yeah, I, you know, 45-year resident of Los Angeles. I've done everything I can to keep my 310 uh, number, even though I moved to the Valley 20 years ago. I think the 818, you know, probably 20 years ago, the 818 had a much uh, was kind of stigmatized for those of us growing up in the 310, and no one wanted 818. So everybody did what they could to uh, keep their 310 area code. So what does your 310 mean to you? What do you think it says about you to others? Uh, for for sure, you guys were talking about kind of stereotypes of 310. I think the status, you know, when I when I see another 310 number, like there's already there's automatically some kind of like kinship that oh you know we we hear somebody I who has a 310 number like I identify with you because we kind of grew up similar, uh, we come from a similar background because it's people who have those numbers especially on cell phones have had them for a long time yeah, and yeah. so it's you know it's something that you hold on to. Mark, thank you so much. Mark in Sherman Oaks. He didn't go the 818 route. He kept the 310-866-893-5722. Jeffrey in Beverly Hills says there was a time uh, before numerical codes. In the 50s, I was growing up, and names were attached to the prefixes. So Beverly Hills was Crestview. Inglewood was Orchard. You dial in letters before the number. That's right. It would be the first two letters, and... um, when when I moved to Hollywood as a kid, even that would have been 1970, even then people would still do Hollywood and then the the um, uh, the five dig- uh, five digits after that. So the first two digits of the prefix would be four six in Hollywood, for example. So the area code's two one three, and then it would be four six whatever. If you lived in Hollywood, four six corresponded to the letters H O for Hollywood. So, so that was, and so you'd see TV ads come to the Hollywood uh, farmers market H O six five whatever you know the number was. So Jeffrey is taking us back to those years. Pasadena, I believe was Sycamore, S-Y-7-9, were the first two digits of, of the prefix in all Pasadena numbers. 866-893-5722. Caitlin Hernandez continues with us. When we come back, what do your area code, what does it mean to you? We'll be back in a minute. Tomorrow on Film Week, I'll be joined by Manuel Betancourt and Christy Lemire. They'll tell us about the new film from Ethan Cohen and Tricia Cook. It's titled Drive Away Dolls. It's a crime comedy starring Margaret Qualley, Geraldine Viswanathan, and Beanie Feldstein. Coleman Domingo uh, of Rustin, who's Oscar-nominated for Best Actor, is also part of the cast of Drive Away Dolls. And we'll hear about a documentary on the wonderful film composer uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, Ennio is the title of that documentary. A lot of really interesting-looking films. That's tomorrow at 10 o'clock, Film Week here on LAist 89.3. Joining me is Caitlin Hernandez. Their piece in LA Explained uh, for LAist.com details the new area code that's coming this fall in November. The number is 738 that we're going to be getting as an overlay to the 213 and 323. And it just gives us a great excuse to talk about what area codes mean to us. Um, 
Joe in Redondo Beach emailed, no one dials area codes anymore. We just click on the contact on the phone, have no idea what someone's area code is. This is an issue that only means something to people over 50 who remember actually dialing. I find myself still having to punch in area codes sometimes, like if I'm calling into AirTalk. It's not in my contact list. But, Caitlin, you're under 50, and and area codes still have meaning, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it definitely uh, could mean a a little bit of a difference. Different thing. This is more of like more f- f- feeling a connection to the code versus oh, I have to dial this yeah. number. Like I, I definitely don't dial much anymore either, but it still yeah. happens. All right, eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. Eddie in Long Beach, good to have you with us. Uh, what does an area code mean to you? Hi, thank you. Uh, well, I have a nine one seven area code, and kind of like your previous callers, become a. a a, a unicorn of an area code. I live in uh, Long Beach, moved here, been here like 15 years, and but not even people from New York with new cell phones have that area code. I was still going to let it go about five years ago because of I got tired of all those fan calls, but uh, my mom has Alzheimer's, and my number, my phone number, is the only one of the few things that she remembers. Wow. So I decided not to let it go because I get random calls from my mother and that's one of the few things that, you know, she remembers. And uh, I'm not going to let it go till you know, till that stops, I guess. What a great story. And yeah, you, you well, you can't change it, of course, uh, since since she's kept that that in mind. Eddie, thank you so much for sharing that. Again, 917, the New York area code, people holding on to years after being in Southern California. Eddie in Long Beach, 866-893-5722. Amanda in Claremont said, I was a sales rep back when you had to pay extra to dial out uh, an area code on your cell phone. Just so to keep in touch with clients, I chose an 818 code. It's been 35 years since I selected it, and I can't imagine changing it now. That's Amanda in Claremont. Amy in Pasadena emailed, I grew up in Minneapolis, 612, and I've had the same phone number since I was 16. I'm 45 now. Despite living in five different states, I still get people recognizing my Minneapolis area code and bond with friends and colleagues over it. This is great. It's something I I wouldn't have even thought of, you know, this idea that uh, it introduces you to people. Yeah, definitely. It's a great conversation starter. I yeah. love that. Heather in Moore Park emailed, my area code is 323, even though I've lived in the 805 Ventura County area. When I started my life in Southern California 18 years ago, I first lived with my husband in Hollywood. We proudly got our 323. Even though we only lived in Hollywood two years, I've taken 323 with me through four moves, one of them out of state. I love living in Southern California, and my 323 number reminds me of a fun beginning in Hollywood. Heather, that's great. So it takes you back uh, to uh, to those days. Stephen Mount Washington, my sister kept our parents' 310454 number, the first number we learned as kids. Back then it was just 454. We used GL4 for Gladstone. Some may not know that was the or- or origin of Gladstone for fish. It was the phone number of the restaurant. I had no idea. Now, I, I can't vouch that that's actually a true story, Steve, but you, you sound so convinced. I'll take it as as gospel, even though we're a news show. 866-893-5722. John, driving on the San Diego freeway, the 405 in the South Bay. John, are you 562 there? 
I am 5'6'2", and I have a fair amount of uh, identity tied to that. It feels like one of the uh, last great holdovers from uh, the time when they were uh, regional area codes. Uh, all you have to do is watch swingers to get an idea of that, <laughs> uh, especially with long especially with Long Beach being the largest municipality in that 562 and uh, being born and raised there, it just really feels you know, like a part of me, and I'll, I'll never let it go. Yeah. And when people see the 562, do you find it it's sometimes a conversation starter, particularly with people you wouldn't otherwise known uh, grew up in Long Beach? Um, really not, just because it's been around for so long. It's pretty established. You know, I do a lot of work with people out of state, and they ask a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's it's an entity now that's been around for a while, so it, it just is what it is. All right, John, thank you so much. Maurice in West Hollywood says, I've had my 917 New York code since 1998. I learned from Carrie Bradshaw, and I'm not letting it go. Whenever I give someone my number and they say, oh, uh, New York, I proudly say, yes, I lived in Manhattan for 12 years. That's Maurice in West Hollywood. Josh in Studio City emailed, I grew up in Studio City with an 818 code. 213 was downtown. I still associate 818 with, quote, residential and 213 with, quote, work all these years later. That's so funny. You know, Josh, I do too. I hadn't thought of it till you mentioned that, that when I see a 213 area code, I think of business despite all the people now that live downtown because almost no one used to live downtown. We This pre-boom, it was pretty much all businesses that had the 213 code. Bonnie in Los Angeles, my husband grew up in the South Bay. His parents' landline phone was 213. We lived in Florida for several years. He lost that area code. But when we moved back, he got a Google phone number that offered a 213 code because it was so nostalgic for him. And Carol emailed, love the moment in the movie Swingers where John Favreau gets a girl's number and his friends ask 818 and he says 310. Too funny. 866-893-5722. Denise in Crenshaw, good to have you with us. I was uh, always a 213 and it identified me as Los Angeles, so I was really annoyed when they forced us to 323. Uh, but their explanation was they're running out of numbers and only downtown could have 213. Since then, they, I've learned that other people have 213 area codes that clearly don't live downtown, so now I'm really annoyed. It still <laughs> bugs me that I had to really let go of my 213 area code. Denise, thanks so much. In the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles, just as she said, I remember so well when that part of southwest Los Angeles was shifted out of 213 to the 323 area code. Hollywood similarly went through that shift at the very same time. Matt, in the city of Orange, I was living in Corona, but we got assigned a new code. I moved my business to Orange County so I could retain 714. It's a status of Caitlin moving his business so he could keep the code. That's some dedication. I mean, I, I love this because it just shows of how these three numbers, they're very simple, but they can mean a lot to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip in Woodland Hills, my golf club in Burbank, they started selling 818 hats in their gift shop. Interesting to me that area coats not only bring a sense of ownership to residents, but have evolved into merchandise, which is crazy. Uh, that's Philip in Woodland Hills. Uh, these are such great comments from so many listeners. Caitlin, this has really been fun. 
I agree. I agree. And I love, I have to say, I love the New York representation that's coming in. Today. Isn't that something? Yeah. That, that well, it just says about the influence here in Southern California, people from the Big Apple, of course. So, Caitlin, we can read your piece at LAS.com about the overlay of the 738 that's coming? Yes, definitely. And you'll get more stories, too, about um, the people I spoke to who shared their stories. There's, you know, I have one person that would drive to other county just to make sure she got an area code she wanted. So you can find that at LAS.com. And you can also just go to LAS.com slash LA Explain to find Great. Yours. And for those that are upset, no one's going to be forced to have a 738, correct? As That's- as far as I know, yes, okay. it's an overlay, so it should just be an additional code to pick from. All right, very good. All right, Caitlin Hernandez, who writes LA Explained for LAist.com. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. When we come back, we're going to be talking with our television critics about a whole host of things going on. We'll talk about uh, some of the network series that have returned but in truncated season because of the joint Hollywood strikes. That includes Abbott Elementary, Ghosts, and uh, also back uh, Bob Hart's Abishola for its final season, fifth year. Those and many more series coming up on Film Week's TV Talk, or Air Talk's TV Talk on LA's 89.3. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. So nice to hear Virgil's comments, such an important part of the leadership at LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. It's time to talk television. It's Entertainment Thursday, and that includes TV. And we're so pleased to have critics back with us. Ingu Kang of The New Yorker and Christina Escobar, co-founder and critic of latinamedia.co, to talk about a lot of stuff going on with new and returning series. But one of the things uh, that's gotten a lot of attention here in Los Angeles because the show is set in L.A. is the cancellation of the Hulu streaming series This Fool. It had a 20-episode run, a comedy series set on the east side of Los Angeles. Gustavo Arellano, L.A. Times columnist, wrote a really uh, terrific piece about a series uh, that are set in, in Los Angeles with Latino casts uh, being canceled after relatively short runs. And, and one of the points that Gustavo makes is that we really need to support those series because they get canceled because of you know too few viewers tuning in for them and, and that it's really important for viewers to support them. Uh, Christina, l- let me start with you. Your, your thoughts about the cancellation of, of this fool? 
So first of all, I want to say that this whole was a really great show. You know, the first season got on a, a lot of best of lists. It was hilarious. I thought it was really funny whether you were um, Latino or not, whether you were LA based or not. It had this sort of mm, red, you know, this uh, esoteric dread coloring it all up with the really specificity of the Chicano experience in LA that I thought was really, really great. I was sad to see that it was canceled and glad to see that Gustavo was writing about it. Um, but I took a little bit of an issue with Gustavo's approach and I love him and love his work generally. His thesis in the article is that Latinos in particular were sort of getting what we deserve perhaps because we don't show up for our own shows. And he cites a UCLA study and it's interesting because I've read that UCLA study and also spoken several times with one of its principal authors, Ana Cristina Ramon, out of UCLA. And one of the things that she says that I think is really powerful and helps arm us is that Latino viewers, we actually do show up in greater numbers for our shows. So um, Gustavo notes that um, this pool wasn't one of the top Latino shows. Instead, Latinos watch the same things that everybody watches. Yeah. We mm -hmm. watch Stranger Things and all of those popular shows. Um, but the numbers also show that we do over-index for our own content. So I don't think the fault here lies in the Latino viewers not showing up. I think it is in networks for not marketing our stuff as for everybody. This Fool was a show that anybody could watch and enjoy and find funny. And I felt like they did a good job on the first season, but did not do a good job on the second season, uh, which came okay. up during the strikes. Um, so I felt a little bit frustrated with that. Um, and I would encourage, you know, other folks to watch it. I think it's partly marketing dollars. And it's also how our shows are positioned. They're not just for us. They're universal mm -hmm. stories in the same way that we all should be watching shows by Black creators and Asian creators and Indigenous creators. Everybody should be watching Latino shows, too. So I would encourage the broader audience to tune in and studios to note that that is how our shows should be um, presented to viewers and, of all races and nationalities. Well, and Christina, when this fool debuted, it got a lot of marketing muscle during sports events because I watch a fair amount of sports TV, and I saw this fool all over the place. It made me want to tune in, um, also because uh, it looked funny from the from the promos, and I knew it was set in Los Angeles. You know, and and like you, I think the world of Gustavo is a friend of our program, and I've known him for years. But, you know, it's something we say in radio is no listener picks the wrong station. In other words, <laughs> you know, it's people pick what they like. We can't say, well, they're listening to another. How dare they do that? No, people listen to what they want to listen to. The listener is never wrong. And I would argue the viewer is never wrong. They're going to watch what they're interested in and more power to them. But it is it is sad to see a series like this set in our community that had, as you said, a terrific first season fall by the wayside. Uh, Ingu Kang, let me bring you into the conversation. Your thoughts on this fool's cancellation. Oh, it's so sad. It was such a unique show. I think not only because it was absolutely one of the funniest shows on TV, but I think it does something a little bit different compared to other Latino shows or a lot of these shows that I think, you know, if we think about like the Cosby show, if we think about uh, Fresh Off the Boat, these are family comedies. And in a lot of ways, that is where TV pioneering works. Uh, this is how pop culture sort of gets Trojan horse a bit into 
uh, the larger consciousness by having these like really family friendly representations. And of course, that's great. And that's important. But what I really loved about this school is that it was, you know, a culture comedy, but it was also an existential dread comedy, which... <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know, like, how can you get more universal than the existential <laughs> dread in the 2020s? So, you know, that really made me sad. The other part that made me sad is this is a show that I told so many of my friends to watch, and pretty much all of them told me, I'll get to it when I get to it. And I think there's this idea that, you know, with streaming, because you can theoretically watch it at any time, it doesn't matter when you watch it. But now we're realizing it actually does matter because it really has an impact on whether something gets renewed or not. A very good point. Well, we have a number of network TV series that have returned after um, the dark period because uh, of the uh, double strikes that were going on. So Ghosts, which uh, ended up being... uh, a hit for CBS is back in its third season. These seasons truncated because of the strikes. Bob Hart's Abishola has begun airing its fifth and final season. Uh, both of those shows, Ghosts and Bob Hart's Abishola, are on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus next day. And Abbott Elementary, the much acclaimed ABC and Hulu series, uh, has begun its third season. So uh, I'll just uh, say I've had a chance to see the first couple episodes episodes of season three of Ghosts. It looks like it's very much in keeping with what we've come to expect from the first two seasons uh, of that series. Again, that's something. And I'd just be interested, uh, Ingo, your your thoughts on, you know, the Ghosts is kind of broken out, which is very tough to do on network television now, because, you know, particularly with, with comedies, but even scripted series generally, you know, they're just getting the tune in is tough for the networks. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting that you said that Ghost sort of picked up where it left off. That was that's a show I wish I liked, but I know it has its fan base. I'm not of the fan base. But I sort of wanted to talk about Abbott Elementary because they actually wrote a break into the show. They sort of had like a storyline, as you know, since you watched. Yeah. Um, where there was a five month break in the shooting within the show because Abbott Elementary is a mockumentary about an elementary school. And they sort of had this like very quick storyline about how the filmmakers who are making that mock that documentary within the show, they had their uh, camera stolen, yes. and then it took them five months to for three people with art degrees to save up for one camera, which you know that is an allusion to the financial vicissitudes of making art, and if that is not some sort of you know sideways reference to the strike, I don't know what it could be. Um, I had to say, one thing I really love about Abbott is that when it came back, it did not bother to pick up where it left off. I think a lot of people were really invested in the well, they won't they and they do sort of pick up with that. But they yeah. do have also like a really big shakeup where they take the main character out of the classroom and put her in sort of like a more bureaucratic setting. And, you know, I think with network comedies more than any other genre, it is really about that push and pull between the comfort of stasis and the necessary novelty of change. And I really love that Abbott Elementary thought, you know, as much as we are a comfort show, we are going to like push the audience just a little bit because we need to sort of like move on and be more ambitious with our show. Well, and, and I, oh, I'm and sorry. And I love I that they, the strike sort of into 
the show as well. And there is this acknowledgement that, you know, things have changed. Well, and, and I love uh, that Quinta Brunson's character of, of Janine um, is is has made a, a shift. And we see now the the interior of how the district itself works and the education related humor. Abbott does so well of sending up the bureaucracy of public education. So this gives us a whole other opportunity for just bizarre and nonsensical things to happen at the district level. And of course, for Cheryl Lee Ralph. Barbara to respond with her, you know, years of seeing it all, you know, and 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 low expectations uh, of of what the district can provide. Janelle James Ava character uh, goes through a transition that's very very funny, and you know, she of course one of the great talents of of TV comedy. So, um, Inko, I I'm with you. I thought they kicked off the season in beautiful form. Yeah, and it sort of gets to this larger question of, you know, now Janine is, since she's working for the district, she is in a position to affect change. But if you are making change from afar, removed from sort of like the ground level, how much change can you really make? And how attuned are you to the changes that are necessary? I mean, again, this is another like universal issue, right? And I love that they sort of like put this in here because I think the sort of risk with, always giving up on the possible help that you could get but never do get from the district is a form of nihilism, right? Like, oh, well, nothing's ever going to change. So like, why expect anything to improve? And I think they really did like a nice shakeup with that. And they are clearly resisting the urge to fall into that nihilism. It's just, I don't know how more to praise a show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's beautifully written, so well acted, and just, so funny. I, just I, I, I laugh at it more than any other series. It's just a laugh out loud. Abbott Elementary Season 3, uh, the first couple of episodes uh, premiered back on February 7th, and four of them are out now on Hulu. Will Trent, in its second season, also streaming on Hulu and broadcast on the ABC Network, starring Ramon Rodriguez and Erica Christensen, Liz Heldens and Daniel T. Thompson are the creators of Will Trent. Christina, what do you think of this second season? Oh, I think um, you were speaking about comfort TV, and it may seem strange to call a procedural a show where at least one person dies a week, at least minimum comfort, but I really find this show so, so comforting. It has all of those elements of the classic procedural, the TV um, tidiness where you can solve a mystery in 44 minutes or less, um, and the world, the order of the world is restored. But it also has these really um, dynamic, interesting characters. They're really smart with how they play with culture, with the main characters, Latinidad, which is a new element from the books that it was based off of. Um, And they build this show that is funny and smart. The first season had some interesting sort of critiques of cop culture. We didn't see that in the season premiere. There's only one episode out so far, but hopefully that will be to come. But I really feel like there's a reason why those TV formulas have existed for so long and Will Trent and its sort of breakout success in its first season, talking about another show on a network that helped break out. Uh, Rodriguez even got nominated for some awards, um, which also, you know, the procedural genre generally doesn't get that type of attention. I just felt like this show 
is one that I just really enjoy watching that feels tidy and comforting um, and also just charming. They're just a charming group of folks and a cast that is makes the viewing experience just really lovely. We're talking about the season two, a premiere of Will Trent on ABC with next day streaming on Hulu. Uh, we have, uh, let's see, uh, first episode out, second releases next Tuesday, uh, 8 p.m. on ABC, Hulu streaming the next day. Coming up, we'll hear from our TV critics about Jenny Slate's second stand-up special on Amazon Prime Video, One Day, which is a British romance series on Netflix, and The Traders, second season debuting on Peacock. You're listening to our TV Talk segment on Entertainment Thursday on Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Back in a minute. It's TV Thursday on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Reminder tomorrow it's film week. I'll be with you at 10 o'clock with Christy Lemire and Manuel Betancourt. We'll hear about the new comedy crime film Drive Away Dolls from Ethan Cohen, half of the Cohen brothers, uh, co wrote the screenplay with Tricia Cook and Margaret Qualley. Uh, Geraldine Viswanathan and Beanie Feldstein are the stars of that film. Coleman Domingo, Oscar nominated, also in the cast. Uh, we'll hear about Ordinary Angels, starring Hilary Swank. The Ark of Oblivion, which is uh, a documentary, uh, also a documentary on the terrific uh, film composer uh, Ennio Morricone. That's all coming up tomorrow at 10 on Film Week on LAist 89.3. But we're talking TV right now with critics Ingu Kang of The New Yorker and Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co. Next is the second stand-up special of comedian Jenny Slate. A subtitled Seasoned Professional. It's streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Inku's had a chance to see it. What did you think? I love this. Um, I am not the world's biggest Jenny Slate fan. I don't have anything against her. I think, you know, she just has like a set of projects that I don't particularly pay attention to. And I decided to sort of watch this on a whim. And it is just such a great distillation of her particular charm and her particular sense of humor and you know this is maybe like a bit of a conspiracy theory on my part but i do think that like the secret to why she is so successful in the business is because she has this like very strange ability to sound simultaneously with her voice like an old lady and also a child <laughs> that is a and... talent <laughs> And she knows exactly how to modulate um, basically, you know, across 70 years or so with her voice to make this um, as just like a charm bomb as much as possible. A lot of it is about, you know, how she spent the pandemic, which is she got married and had a kid and moved across the country in a three day panic that involves some overalls and really seedy stuff on those overalls because they do not sound like they stopped at any hotel rooms or were very, very um, reluctant to use them. But in any case, uh, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of comedians really go for that balance between 
the earnest and ironic and this just sort of nailed it and it felt like catching up with an old friend where they are telling you all the crazy things that happened to them in the last three years and of course because this is Jenny Slade and she is in a lot of ways sort of like known for her body humor it really has a lot to do with sort of like the dark side of love she talks about how much she doesn't appreciate her mom she talks about how she wants to stalk her therapist and then she goes on this like really long tangent about what she would do if she did end up stalking her therapist and her daughter and you know how birth giving birth maybe reminded her of like a bathroom accident she had on a middle school field trip it goes really in a lot of different directions, but it also feels really cohesive. And it just has, it's just like the perfect amount of vibes that you would want for, I think, someone who is like Jenny Slate, who has like a really great mix of like neuroses, but also a sort of like consistent through line. We're talking about the second stand-up comedy special from Jenny Slate, seasoned professional. It's streaming on Amazon Prime Video and premiering later today. Uh, also, just a, a piece of trivia, Jenny Slate, for those who were fans of last year's Oscar-nominated animated feature, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, she was the voice uh, of Marcel in that film. Uh, the Netflix uh, streaming British romantic series One Day stars Leo Woodall and Ambika Mode. Christina, what do you think of One Day? Well, you know, it's interesting. We have a lot of romances about... Um, a pairing of unequal, you know, from Cinderella to, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy <laughs> to Love Actually. We have a lot of those stories. And what I really appreciated about One Day is it is a romance between equals. They're not always perfectly equal. And in many ways, they're set up in that unequal fashion. But the show um, does a really good job of investigating those ways and sort of seeing the ways that when they are unequal, it actually works against their romance instead of for them um, and positioning them on even footing and recognizing the sort of different strengths and weaknesses they have. So our male character is that golden boy, rich, white kid um, who everybody loves and charms and is charmed by. And so in many ways, you would think that he has the power over our um you know, woman of color, kind of more nerdy, but she's, you know, the one who gets good grades in college and, you know, at university, that is the way they actually rank you. And so she, what she really has that he doesn't is a sense of herself all the way through. She doesn't always have the courage to go after what she wants, but she always knows versus he meanders much more. And as we follow them over the course of one day, it's that one day, July 15th, over a series of years, we see their relationship start, become friends. You know, they both are obviously attracted to each other. It's a romance. So there is sort of a will they, won't they. Um, and there's a lot of really beautiful understanding of what it is mm. to grow up, of friendships, of falling in love, of the danger of falling in love with your best friend. And it really works really, really well. And I really appreciated most of the series, although um, 
I, I I loved the vast majority of it, but I did not love the ending. So you oh. or beware, it does okay. take a tragic turn. So I don't oh. know. Sometimes when I catch the old West Side Story on TV, I turn it off before it goes too far south. So <laughs> okay. you might want to consider that for this one as well. All 14 episodes of One Day are available on Netflix. Uh, and we have the second season of the reality show, The Traders, which is streaming on Peacock. Ingu, can you give us just a, a, a quick synopsis and your thoughts on the traders. Yeah, this is an unusually atmospheric TV, sh- an unusually atmospheric reality show. It is hosted by Alan Cumming, and he does his very French, sorry, <laughs> his very Scottish accent in his very Scottish castle, where he has quote unquote invited a host of people to come. And some of them are the faithful, and a very select few are the traders who are going right. to. metaphorically kill one of the faithfuls uh, each night and the survivors have to figure out who the traitors are who are killing them and the great thing about season two is that it is all former reality stars and there is quickly this division between the bravo liberties and the stars who have come through the uh reality competition pipeline you know like on shows like big brother or survivor and one of the things that i love the most about the second season is you are actually surprised by how much the real housewives are outplaying the contestants of survivor and big brother (laughs) and the challenge because it is a human reading competition and you know a lot of these Clues are based not only on who gets murdered after what incident, but eye twitches. And is she showing enough surprise at the breakfast the next day? All right. The Traders Season 2 is streaming on Peacock. Uh, Nine of the episodes are available. There'll be a total of 12 of them by season's end. My thanks so much to our critics for joining us to talk television. Ingu Kang of The New Yorker and Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co. I want to thank our terrific Air Talk team. They are just so great. Uh, led by Matt D'Angelo Antonio, our senior producer. Our producers are Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. Sonata Lee Narcisse joined us as well as producer this week. Our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez. Our technical director and engineer, Evelyn Bocanegra. Thanks to all of them who just do such a stellar job getting the best guests you'll find anywhere. Have a terrific rest of your day. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10 for Film Week. Austin is here tomorrow morning at 9. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to Relate podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.